As we sit together, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to look at your word tonight, we pray that the message that Paul has written to his friend Philemon might come clearly through for us in our situation. And so we pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to each one of us tonight. Amen. You might like to keep that uh, passage open in front of you. I think it's page 1120. The theme for tonight, of course, is how should the family of God live within itself and within the context of the civil society that it finds itself in. So what are our relationships like? What happens when something goes wrong? We know, of course, through Christian history, whether it's very recent or whether it's very long, that things do go wrong within the church as a society. Perhaps there's bitter criticism when there's disagreement over theology, over the way that we run services, the type of music we have. I was interesting uh, last weekend when we were looking at those records at the back of the church 150 years ago. The vicar was writing about how inappropriate the hymn book was because people couldn't sing from it. And that was a hundred odd years ago. Nothing has changed, has it? Okay, but so how do we react when these things happen? How do we react when division comes? And how does the outside world see us when there's such disagreement? Well, too often I believe that the world sees criticism, it sees strife, a lack of reconciliation, and a splitting of friends. I'm sure that for many of you here who have been following Christ for many years and have been part of the Christian community will have had some experience of that. Well, Paul gives us a very different picture of how the family of God should live in our passage tonight. Now, it is a very small book. It's a personal letter to a friend called Philemon. And as we read this letter, we can get a sense of Paul's care and love for this friend and that small church that meets in his, in his house. If you look at the passage in front of you, look at verses 1 to 7. Paul starts off by giving his situation. He's a prisoner for Jesus. He's in jail because of the witness and preaching the message that Jesus is the Son of God. And it cost him his physical freedom. Remember, the Jews, both the Jews and the Romans, were opposed to Jesus and his claims to be the only way to God. Paul is with his brother Timothy. He calls Philemon his dear friend and fellow worker. In other words, he brings Philemon into the same situation that he is in. They are both working for Jesus. In fact, the whole church that meets in the house of their home is included. And he offers them grace and peace as an opener. And then he goes on to acknowledge their faith and love for all the saints. And so in this first passage, we see Paul building them up. He's encouraging them before he gets to the hard bits of his message. The hard bits concerning forgiveness. 
He states how he has been built up. He has been encouraged by their love. And in verse 6, he instructs them to continue in sharing their faith with others, being a witness like him. Why? Because this will ensure, he says, that you have a full understanding of all the good things we have in Christ. Paul is stating that the physical act of witnessing will bring them into this full understanding and they won't miss out by doing so. And as I was reading this and praying about it, I wondered, do I miss out, do we miss out if we don't witness to others that Christ has provided for us? It's a sobering question, isn't it? That might help to explain why we live sometimes in doubt and uncertainty. But surely, this is a pattern that we can usefully follow. Witnessing will build up our faith as well as doing God's will. I've heard, as perhaps many of you had, of many examples where young people, particularly at this time of the year, in the summer, have been on mission, perhaps to a seaside resort, working with other young people. They come back encouraged, buoyed up, because prayers have been answered and people have turned to Christ. And so this is what Paul says to this small church here. He encourages them and then goes on to the main message, the need for forgiveness within the community. Now, for us to understand this, I believe we need to know something about the situation that Paul is living in at the time. And that, of course, was the Roman Empire. Now, we might not know too much about the Roman Empire, but we are all surely aware of how this empire was brutal, dangerous, but civilised in some ways, yet it was built upon slave labour, which constructed buildings, grew food, served meals, cleaned houses, and were a material ownership. In this society, the number of slaves you possessed was a sign of your wealth, your prestige and power. Perhaps it was something like the size of our houses or the size of our cars today. And this state of affairs was protected by the Roman law. If a slave tried to run away, they were in fact stealing from their owner because their owner actually owned them. There was a price on their heads. And within this young, small church, there was a man called Philemon who owned at least one slave. There may, of course, have been many others in the church who owned slaves because it was a part of their culture. But here in this letter, we read of one such slave, Onesimus, I can never say that word. I was going to call him Fred, but uh, Onesimus will do. Okay, I'll try and get it right. Well, this this Onesimus had apparently run away from his owner, Philemon, and he'd met with Paul, who'd led him to Christ. We read something of the nature of this man in verse 10. He'd become the spiritual son of Paul. Look what Paul says in verse 11. The slave had been useless to Philemon, Perhaps his quality of his work was pretty poor. But he changed. And so we have within this small church the situation of one man who owned a runaway slave who had become a Christian 
and a friend of the Apostle Paul. How should the Christian owner react to this runaway slave? How should the rest of the church relate to the slave and the owner? It was a potential disaster area. It could have sparked off a really divisive situation within that small church because it broke all the social norms of their society. And I would like to suggest to you it was a classic example of the need for forgiveness within the community. Now, if you want a a really good modern example of the power of forgiveness in a community, look no further than the case of Nelson Mandela. Remember that man? He fought against the racist system of apartheid. He was in prison for 20 years. And when he got out of prison, he harboured no ill will and became president of that society. And he set up the Truth and Reconciliation Committee, which sought to uncover the facts of apartheid and to forgive those involved. Desmond Tutu, who presided over the commission, wrote a book about it called No Future Without Forgiveness. And that book's worth reading if you're interested. Because that's a modern example of forgiveness within a community. But this passage gives us a real insight into the nature of forgiveness. Now I'd like to suggest to you that for forgiveness to happen, we need a transformation of character. A transformation brought about by Jesus to the lives of ordinary people living within their country, within their culture. We see here the change in the slaves' lives by coming under the influence of Jesus and Paul in verse 10 and 11. But having met Paul, who had led him to Jesus, the slave became the spiritual son of Paul and he became very useful. So we have a transformation from someone who was not very useful into someone who was very useful. And this transformation was brought about by meeting Jesus and coming under the influence and teaching of Paul. But not only was he useful to Paul, he was to be useful to his master again because we read in verse 12, Paul is going to send him back despite the fact that he would prefer to keep him by his side. And this transformation brought about by Jesus was not just for the slave. No, the owner of the slave was also to be transformed or changed. Look at verse 17. Philemon is told to welcome the slave back home, but not as a slave, but as a dear man and a brother in Jesus. In other words, there would need to be a complete transformation in the attitude and behaviour of the owner of the slave towards him as well as the slave himself. And here we see, I believe, the revolutionary nature and power of the forgiveness through the gospel and the love of Jesus. Think of what this would have meant to the Roman society. Think what the reaction must have been within that small church where there would have been nowhere to hide. This slave who had stolen from his master, disgraced his master, was to be forgiven and welcomed back in love into the community of the church. 
Now, it's worth pointing out at this point that Paul isn't crusading for the abolition of slavery. In a way, he's going beyond it because he's asking that there is a complete change in the attitude of the rightful master who had every reason to be angry with the slave and every reason to demand justice from the Roman courts. No, the love of Jesus was to transform and change this situation. But not only was Philemon to change, we read that Paul was willing to support Onesimus in a financial way by paying for any debt that he owed. Look at verse 18. So Paul is actively involved in the transformation and forgiveness. Paul is encouraged that this complete change, instead of having Roman justice, which would have incurred the death of the slave and repayment of the value, now Paul is seeking complete forgiveness and acceptance by Philemon to a man who has stolen from him. Now, such is the confidence of Paul in Philemon that he goes on to ask for refreshment in his heart to be made joyful by him, but also for the provision of a room to stay in. So there we have it. That's the account that Paul writes of in Philemon. But what about us? Because we don't obviously live in an age of slavery within our country and we don't have that sort of issue. What can we take from Paul's teaching concerning forgiveness? Well, I think there are three important points that we can uh, take from this concerning the whole nature of forgiveness. Firstly, the first important point is that forgiveness breaks the cycle of hatred and revenge between groups of people, even though it may not seem fair. If you want some examples of where that's happened, think of the examples uh, in our recent history of the country of Yugoslavia or the country of Rwanda and the genocide and the stories of forgiveness that have come out from that. Because forgiveness is the only way to break the cycle of revenge, tit for tat, whatever the occasion. But secondly, forgiveness breaks the stranglehold of hatred within ourselves at a personal level and opens up the possibility of healing within ourselves. Now again, it's perhaps easiest to see the extreme cases of this. I I listened uh, to Radio 2 a couple of weeks ago on uh, um, Alan Jones's programme on Sunday morning, and he interviewed a man called Barry Mitson, whose son Jimmy had been brutally stabbed to death in South London in 2008. Now, you know, that man and his wife had every reason to be bitter and hateful towards those boys that had done that terrible deed. But no, they were a Christian couple and they came to the conclusion that the only way forward was to forgive and to be reconciled to the situation. And in doing so, he said, it released us from the resentment and anger and spirit of unforgiveness. Now again, for most of us, of course, we're not going to face, hopefully, that sort of issue. But in smaller ways, 
If we don't forgive, we get locked in, in our own being, into a sense of unforgiveness, resentment, and anger. And we can be released from this by forgiveness. But thirdly, of course, and most importantly, why is forgiveness important? Because God first forgave us our sin through the death of Jesus, which is what we're coming to celebrate, of course, this evening at communion. Forgiveness is God's way of reconciling warring parties. It's one thing to get into a tit-for-tat war with, a, with our wife or husband or friend or colleague. It's another one to get into with God. No, we need to seek forgiveness. And God offers us forgiveness through Jesus. So, from this passage then, we see that if we are followers of Jesus in Christ, there's no room for grievances, grudges, harbouring divisions within the family of the church. All are to forgive and to accept the forgiven. Because whatever our positions, all of us, we're sinners before God. There's no room for pride. But there must be room for forgiveness that has a practical outworking. It's easy, isn't it, to say the confession every week. Easy to confess sin as long as it doesn't cost us anything. C.S. Lewis said, everyone says that forgiveness is a wonderful idea until he has something to forgive. Because we know, don't we, forgiveness is hard, but it must be practical. Grace is needed that can only come from the spirit of Jesus within us. And this passage suggests to us that forgiveness must lead to change in behaviour and attitude in both parties. That is, the party that's wronged and the party that is the wrongdoer. And of course, that's the challenge to us. We are members of a wonderful group of people if we're followers of Jesus. But we need to remember that this group of followers are fallen people, which includes ourselves. And we need to accept confession, forgiveness and look to the future. So let's together tonight as we come to communion, let's rejoice together that we can be united in this body of the church in the same way that that small church in Paul's time could be, as long as we practice forgiveness and reconciliation. Amen.